Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, the podcast where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from C.W. Anderson, Assistant Professor of Media Culture at the College of Staten Island. He's the author of the new book, Rebuilding the News, Metropolitan Journalism in the Digital Age. It's a fascinating look into the Philadelphia journalism scene during the first part of the 21st century. C.W. Anderson, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, C.W., as we've said, is the author of the book, Rebuilding the News. And it's a fascinating look at the Philadelphia newspaper and online news industry, the, the Daily News, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Before we get into the book, though, uh, C.W., if you would, just kind of give us some background about uh, how you got to where you are now and how you got to the interest that you uh, showed in this book. Sure. Um so I, you know, out of college, um, got into, became a community organizer, um, first working in Houston and then in New Jersey, um, around a lot of sort of social justice and housing issues. Um, and this was in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and while I was doing that, um, I became increasing, you know, when you do community organizing work, one of the things that's really important is how you get your message out to the broader, you know, the broader media, um, and I was exposed, you know, around then to all of the different ways that, um, you know, advocacy organizations were using to, you know, to kind of communicate both their, with their members, but especially with to the broader kind of larger what what I guess we might, you know, call then you know, sort of the mainstream media. Um, and I kind of got interested in, in community newspapers and um, and you know pirate radio and you know kind of alternative um, alternative media. Um, know on television um and you know also increasingly interested in all this new stuff that was coming up you know on the internet um which was all very very new back then um folks didn't really use um the you know the internet was obviously you know the mature internet was at least seven or eight years old at that point but you know up until that that time you know nobody had really really been using it as a way to do journalism um, it had been primarily used in other ways. And so all of this stuff was just popping up um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I, as a, as a person working in this world, got really, really interested in it. And then, you know, as I started thinking of going back to graduate school, got interested in it intellectually. Um, so I kind of developed an interest in, you know, kind of alternative journalism. What was the relationship between alternative journalism and and traditional journalism? Um, how did they work together? Did did you know somebody working at the New York Times ever read you know the Village Voice? Uh, you know, did they have any sort of you know relationship in terms of the way information moved across uh, across uh, you know sort of media ecosystems? Um, and that was kind of you know my intellectual interest when I went back to graduate school. I, I um, joined the PhD program at Columbia University, um, which was a fairly new program at, at the time I, I started there. Uh, I started in 2003. 
Um, James Carey was still uh, alive, and he was the head of the program. Uh, Todd Gitlin was there. Um, Andy Tucker was there. Michael Shudson had not yet come on board yet. He was still out at UCSD. Um, so I went back to school, and I had this idea that, you know, hey, you know what? I'm going to study alternative media. That's that's what I want to study. And as I started studying alternative media, you know, I became um, – I started to realize that, you know what? This larger world of journalism um, is changing really, really quickly and in some really, really profound ways. And I got to a moment where I realized, you know what? I don't know if I can say what, you know, alternative and mainstream journalism is anymore um, because all of this is is changing so quickly and online so many different genres of news and advocacy are blurring um, and that that kind of was the impetus for this research project um, there are other there are other sort of you know sort of things that spurred it on including ethnographic questions access questions you know more specific things about this particular project but that's where I started that's where I came from. And that's, I think, you know, kind of why I was always so sensitive to wanting to study more than just the traditional news organizations in Philadelphia, um, because I began with this interest in in everything else um, that was going on in the journalism world. Sure, and you're in New York, and you've got access somewhat. You know, you're not that far away from some other towns that are also are, are two paper town. DC is not that far. Boston's two papers. Philly's two papers. Even Detroit's two papers. How yeah. did you land with Philadelphia for this? Sure. Um, that's sort of one of the first questions that everybody asks. Um, why, you know, why, why Philly? Um, you know, there's sort of an academic answer and a real answer. Um, both are true, um, but you know, like every project, there's sort of personal reasons and sort of intellectual reasons that go into the ultimate decision. Um, you know, the the intellectual reasons are are honestly, you know, it could have been Boston. It could have been. Um, D.C. It could have been Baltimore. Um, I wasn't necessarily committed to a two-newspaper town. Um, what I was committed to was to a, a city um, that was not New York. I mean that was my main sort of overriding criteria. Even though I lived in New York, I obviously knew a lot about how the you know, journalism operated in New York City. Um, Look, you know, obviously ethnography is not designed to be representative in any sort of, you know, it's not generalizable research, um, and, and we shouldn't try to imagine that it that it's going to be. But that said, you know, there's still degrees of, you know, there's still degrees to which you can say, uh, I think this research is 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 true on a scale that goes beyond simply the the city I did the work in. Um, and for me, New York was not that city. Um, New York is a sexy place uh, to do research. Um, you know, now that I've I've turned this from a dissertation into a book, um, I have realized that selling uh, selling scholarship on New York City media is a far easier uh, proposition than uh, than selling uh, scholarship in other places. Uh, you know, which is which is not an intellectual point, but just simply a marketplace point. People love it. Publishers love it when you tell them, you know, oh, I was at the Times, I was at, you know, these big famous news organizations. They are less interested when you tell them, you know, I was at this, you know, paper in Baltimore or paper in Philly um, or paper in Boston. So anyway, so the, the point is that I, you know, really wanted to um, study the way news got produced and traveled in a urban media ecosystem. And I knew New York um, was not the place to do it because um, journalism in New York is never local. Um, and, and the example I like to give is, you know, Mayor Koch, uh, the mayor of New York City, recently passed away. Um, and that was, you know, national news. Um, you could read about that in, in newspapers in California and in New England and in, the, in Chicago. Um, with the exception of Mayor Daley, there are very few mayors anywhere else in the country whose passing away would be would be national news. And, and Ed Koch dying was national news. Um, and everything in New York is that way. So the the environment is slightly different, um, and it's harder to draw that line between what is you know what is local and what is what is not local news. So I wanted to go to a place that was a little less um, sort of globalized than than New York City is. I wanted to go to a place that wasn't as as resource rich as New York is as well, um, because I think when you're thinking about the future of journalism, um, you know we often see what happens in New York City. Um, as a as 
as a model to follow without realizing that the situation in New York, both in terms of the talent available, in terms of the, the relatively still high um, capital resources that publications here have, that's very unusual. Um, so anyway, that's all a long way of saying intellectually uh, I did not want to do my research in New York. Um, so then why Philadelphia? Uh, the, the answer to why Philadelphia in particular is 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 less intellectual. Um, it just ended up being a place where I could get access to a variety of news organizations. Um, between going to conferences and and just making friends and building contacts, um, Philadelphia ended up being a place where um, the 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 operators, the owners, the editors of these these large newspapers and online websites said, "Sure, you can come hang out, you know, as long as you want, and and you know, we're happy to have you, and you know, we will sign all your IRB forms, and we will, you know, we we would love to have you come here, um, you know." And if someone in Baltimore had said that, uh, if someone in Boston had said that, if someone in DC had said that, uh, I could have very it could have very easily been a ethnography of any of those places. Um, you know, and the final reason is uh, the 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 like what I call the real reason uh, is that my family lives near Philadelphia um, in New Jersey. They're about a ten minute um, subway ride from Philadelphia, um, and so as a poor uh, poor graduate student um, without a lot of funding, by the time I got to do this research, um, I had a place to stay uh, for free. Uh, although it was with my parents, and I was thirty years old, uh, but nevertheless. Uh, I did have a place to stay and, uh, you know, kind of a home base to do my work. So, you know, that we shouldn't discount, uh, we shouldn't discount things like that when it comes to how these things get made. No, I mean, you need to do what you need to do. And, and just to be able to have access to a market like Philadelphia in itself is a huge benefit. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, you touch on, on, on these sort of these four narratives that un- unfold. And, and I want to touch on the third and the fourth. The first, you, you talk about the, uh, the, the unraveling of the local public or the idea of yeah. the local public. And then yeah. there's the – I love the, the turn of phrase, the, the idea of this journalistic imagination and original reporting. Yeah. Um, but you talk about this idea of – the third one of the non-diffusion of innovation, yeah. uh, both within organizations and also collaboratively. And yeah. we'll get to the fourth one in a second. But I want to ask that first uh, to sort of turn this, this theory on its ear. Talk more about the, the non-diffusion of innovation and collaboration. Sure. Um and the best way to do this, I think, is to give an example um, and then um, explain what I think that example means in a more a more theoretical way. Uh, so the example is um, is blogging, um, and you know, I'm sure by this point, you know, all of the listeners know what blogging is. But you know, for those who don't, or for those who you know who may not have thought about it as much as I have, um, there was this particular idea of what kind of Content production, media production, journalism production, blogging was in the early, mid, late 2000s. Um, it had this idea that it was it was personal. It was targeted toward a particular niche audience. It involved a ton of aggregation um, and sort of synthesis of online content. Did not necessarily require original reporting, uh, quote unquote. Um, you know, it usually. You know, it was very personality-driven by the person who was running it. Uh, there was often a high level of engagement with, uh, you know, with one's audience. Uh, so all of these are things that you know, quote unquote, blogging meant um, in say 2005. Um, often, you know, at the time, uh, importantly, done by amateurs or done by people who maybe had jobs, but you know, were sort of doing this, this, uh, you know. In their spare time, um, it was not really uh, professionalized, certainly at all, in the way that we see blogging professionalized today. Um, so there was this thing out there. There was the genre of communication. There was this mode of producing producing news and producing journalism and producing public information, um, primarily being done by amateurs. Um, and what you did start to see around 2004 – um, was the news organizations in Philadelphia start to get this idea that hey you know what this these things seem these blogs we don't really understand what they are but they seem you know very popular um, people started to go to conferences in in Silicon Valley and and you know sponsored by uh, different foundations 
um, where sort of blogging was the hot thing and people would talk about, you know, content management systems for it and, and what have you. Um, so these news organizations decided, well, you know, we better, we better start this. We better do this. We better um, – we, we should start doing this within our own organization. Um, okay. So far, that is a story of, of the diffusion of an innovation. Uh, however, the point is that when I talked to the people who were doing blogging at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News, uh, when I examined the history of um, that type of news production within these news organizations, um, what I saw was that that entire – idea of what this particular genre of content production was, right? Um, heavy engagement with the audience, synthesis, geared towards a niche audience, primarily drawing information entirely from online, uh, personality-driven, you know, where the voice of the producer is, is up front. Um, none of that translated to traditional news organizations, uh, even by 2008 when I was doing my my field work. Um, now, I want to put a caveat in there that I think that change has finally occurred. I do not think that you could say you could come to that conclusion necessarily now, especially at sort of places like the Times and the Washington Post. Um, but what were people doing on their blogs, right? There were bloggers at the Daily News. There were bloggers at the Philadelphia Inquirer. What were they doing? Uh, what they were doing was they were using those platforms to do traditional journalistic work, primarily the work of reporting. Um, and they would brag to me quite often that what they did was was real reporting and not um, you know not these kind of other things that the people in the blogosphere did. Uh, and there was really one guy, there was one guy at the Inquirer and one guy at the Daily News who were seen as legitimate traditional members of the blogosphere in Philadelphia. They were part of this network. They they produced content in in that more um, bloggy kind of way. Uh, there was really one at each paper, but there were also there were tons of blogs. Um, people used them, people worked on them, people did them, um, but they were really just an extension of this way to do um, traditional reporting, and they were they were valued highly as such. Um, so reporters basically took blogging and adapted it to what I call repertorial ends. Um, Okay, now it's 2013. That that innovation has finally sort of made it perhaps to other other news organizations. So I guess I'm not saying that innovations never diffuse, um, but I guess what I am saying is that there is certainly a lag between when the technology is available, um, something is named, uh, it's called something, um, the the production processes are theoretically identical, um, but that all gets filtered through something else that has a tendency to make it more normal and more conservative than it might be if we were simply looking at, you know, were there bloggers at the Philadelphia newspapers in 2005? The answer is yes. Were they doing this very kind of new idiosyncratic form of content production that was really important in Philadelphia in 2005? No. They really weren't even doing it in 2008. So that to me, I mean, that's just an example. Um, but there are many other examples I could point to like that. Um, and, you know, to me, that was a really interesting, that was a really interesting finding. Um, I, I don't know if folks have really talked before about, about how those changes in content production um, are or, or are not picked up by incumbent players. Um, so to me, that was, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. Um, and in some ways, I wasn't surprised. But, you know, it was still just sort of fascinating to see, um, you know, on the one hand, go talk to all these real bloggers and, and, and talk to them about what they were doing and what they, whether they thought they were journalists and how and what way they interacted with the traditional newspapers. And then to kind of go back into the, to the newsrooms, you know, and just see that, you know, none of this stuff had really, had really taken hold um, in any profound or significant um, way. Sure. Part of, so much of this book is it's about it seems it's about traditional news organizations, and and some non traditional. But for the traditional ones, the older ones, I hate to use the word traditional, <laughs> right? Uh, but over, the legacy, the uh, legacy, the legacy organizations. Right. Perhaps. It's almost them. It's them overcoming themselves in a yep. lot of ways, uh, and you know, overcoming their stubbornness, overcoming their traditions, um, through you know, and then you know, emerging through transition. What are some of, of the 
uh, of the benchmarks or, or or the pegs that you will um, that you noticed for the ones that were successful that you studied? How do they sort of emerge from their history to become part of the present? That's a really good question um, because I think that you know I I came into these news organizations expecting to see revolutions occur. You know, expecting again, and perhaps that was naive of me. Um, Perhaps I really hadn't absorbed my my Herb Gans um, the way I should have before I went into the field. But you know, I came in where the in 2008 um, was when I started my actual newsroom field work. Although I'd done other stuff a few years before that, and, and the history in the book goes back much further. Um, but I came in in 2008, and if you heard if you if you if you heard the chatter about this um, online. Um, you know, in conferences in Columbia Journalism School, uh, you would be convinced that everything was changing all at once in incredible ways, and everything was sort of falling apart and being rebuilt uh, again. And you know, I got into these newsrooms with that kind of conversation ringing in my head, and you know, for a long time, it uh, you know, it just looked like um, you know nothing was changing that you know this the weight of this history was just too much for these these legacy institutions to overcome it was just too too heavy um and so when i think about this my natural instinct is to not focus as much on on the ones that were successful um <laughs> actually because that's that you know to to me this was more a story of of an inability to change rather than an ability to do so um Okay, but that said, that's obviously not the entire story, um, and there obviously were a lot of adaptations and and benchmarks that people sort of met. Um, so, you know, I guess I would say that to me, um, the benchmarks were one, you know, an ability by news organizations to start to appreciate different forms of reportorial evidence, um, and that's sort of a, a, a jargony word. Um, but what I mean by that is, to me, the sign of a successful news organization um, that sort of got it or was able to overcome its past was an organization that went beyond the sort of holy triumvirate of, you know, we do interviews with public government officials, we look at documents occasionally, and we observe reality and out of those three things we produce stories um, for me the successful organizations the organizations that were able to change said okay well you know what we're also going to you know not look at one document but we're going to look at a thousand documents and use an algorithm um, to analyze them and get narratives out of them um, we are going to get on Twitter and use Twitter as, uh, as, a, as a place where we can go for direct observations and for sources. Um, you know what? We're actually going to read, say we cover the finance in Philadelphia beat or the housing in Philadelphia beat. You know, we're not only going to talk to the five guys um, at City Hall who we use, you know, we call every day, every time we need a story, but we're going to read, you know, every day the 10 blogs in Philadelphia that cover housing issues in, in Philly. Um, so one benchmark was, you know, kind of opening yourself up to to new forms of evidence. Um, you know, a second uh, benchmark um, was this idea of collaboration, um, and it wasn't really. So we can think about journalistic collaboration in two ways, and one way um, is to think of these sort of formal collaborative projects, right? Like I say, you know, I am going to partner – I am with the Philadelphia Daily News, and I'm going to partner with WHYY and this local blogger, and together all of us are going to cover this particular issue. And we'll have a start date and an end date, and we'll have metrics by which we measure, you know, are we successful and not successful um, – that's one form of collaboration that I think is a benchmark. But there's also just an informal level of collaboration. You know, like, do you link to another source? Right? It, even today, the trouble that news organizations have with on their websites linking to other people is sort of mind boggling to me. Right. Um, you know, and, and to me, that is such a profound, you know, we, I mean, you know, David, I don't know if you have ever blogged before. I suspect you have or at least know people who have. I mean, for those of us who have, who have done this kind of work, you know, linking is the foundation of the internet. And yet these traditional news organizations can't, 
it, it's so hard for them. <laughs> sure, it, so, it's it's sure it, it's basic it's basic etiquette to the readers to the other outlets. Yeah, you just something you just need to do. It is something you just need to do, and it is it is incredibly difficult uh, for many organiza- news organizations to get this into their head. So for me, that's a second benchmark, and that's a way of you know. So I'm not just saying you know, hey, when you link, you know, that means you've succeeded, but you know, it does it does represent um, a particular change in mindset, right? Um, and also in production processes, right? That this then becomes part of the work we do, and we have kind of absorbed this webby culture, um, you know, that that has us think about producing news in in new ways. Um, so I would say two really good important benchmarks are one, kind of being open to different different streams of evidence, different kinds of evidence, different. I mean, hey, if we want to use the journalistic terms for it, you know, new sources, right? One one really important benchmark is, you know, are you using new sources? Um, a second benchmark is can you, are you aware of and can you collaborate with the emerging players in this news ecosystem who may not be as good as you are at doing everything, but who may be really good at doing one thing and that one thing they do may be something that you also do. And hey, you know what, maybe there's a way to work with them um, that might, you know, both be good for the public and also be perhaps financially may help you financially you know there may be a financial incentive for you to to do this um, you know and that and, and collaboration can be seen both in terms of formal collaborations like I said and also informal collaborations like things like linking and simply you know being aware of the other the other uh, the other people who are who are making news as well um, maybe not news the way you see news maybe news that is substandard in all these ways that you as a professional would would value um, but they are still providing information to the public in, in in a particular way and and can you kind of handle that <laughs> <laughs> so I'm one chapter and I want I want to get into this and I, it was probably my favorite chapter it was the second chapter and when you focus on the <clears throat> excuse me the independent media center oh good and I'm uh, glad I, I just want to say I, I'm excited and happy to hear that was your favorite chapter um i i think a lot of the folks who have read this from a non-academic world um have sort of found those first two chapters a little a little draggy um and they're like let's get to the newsrooms let's get to the economic collapse so anyway uh that that is gratifying for me it Uh, is it is it's fascinating well i love the the myth making around the 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 wto you know protests in 99 and whatnot and then lo and behold, uh, you know, another branch of the IMC emerges in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, talk about how they fit into your book and, and not just into your book, but into the larger role of digital media. It's sort of yeah. a little bit of background about what the IMC is and then, you know, again, how they uh, pop up in your book. Sure. So, you know, I – the Independent Media Center is sort of a, a – it's not a random starting point, but but I do make this argument that, you know, this is the moment when we – those of us who are paying attention first saw the fact that you know ordinary citizens could contribute information to the public sphere um, in in ways that you know only journalists could do prior to you know 1999. Um, you know, and it was a that, that again that's sort of a random place to start, but that that's sort of where I start. Uh, so, what was the Independent Media Center? Um, the Independent Media Center was you know. A collective of 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 both you know uh, activists who were involved in sort of anti globalization uh, act- well they didn't like to call it that uh, but no, let's just call it anti globalization for 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 the sake of argument you know sort of anti globalization um, activism in the late nineties and early two thousands um, and you know so it was activists but it was also it was this sort of trio of groups it was activists who were pro, who were who were engaged in this activist work um they were people who had been involved in all of those other forms of non-digital grassroots media that i mentioned at the beginning of the interview uh folks like paper tiger television who really pioneered um you know video production uh, you know uh, amateur video production and cable you know putting a direct access news shows um, and subversive sort of art journalism um, and, and people involved in pirate radio. So that was sort of your second group, right? People who had been doing kind of, you know, alternative media and, and zine makers. I mean, that's another huge, huge part of this, you know, but so the second group is people who have been doing this kind of activist media work um, 
or, or, or alternative media work for many years prior to the internet. You know, and sort of the third group were the politically uh, engaged members of the open source and hacking community. Um, you know, people who did stuff like Linux and Debian and, you know, sort of open source coding and, and you know, but we're also highly politicized. Um, and, and I just want to give a shout out to um, Biela Coleman's book, um, Coding Freedom, which is sort of an anthropology of the hacker community. And one of the points she makes is that, you know, for a very long time, um, the hacker community was not politicized in a, in a progressive or a liberal way. Uh, they were not in many ways political at all. So, you know, the fraction of hackers who had like larger political commitments kind of gravitated over to the independent media center. Um, and they built a lot of the, um, the technology and the code and, you know, the software that powered these open source media systems. Uh, so what happened? Basically, the idea was, you know, I think a lot of this came out of people who had been reading Todd Gitlin's book, The Whole World is Watching, uh, and also living Todd Gitlin's book, The Whole World is Watching, uh, and realizing that, you know what, we have all these political grievances, we have all these issues that we really care about, we're having these protests, and we know that the traditional media is going to marginalize us, they're going to you know not take us seriously, they're going to find subtle ways to kind of make us seem sort of deviant. Um, you know what? And we are not going to rely on them to get our message out. We are going to put the message out ourselves, um, which has always been something that that social movements have done. Um, but now you can sort of do it online, which means that theoretically you can stand on equal footing with all these other players um, who are also online. And B, you can do it in real time. And what I mean by that is if you are a photographer at a protest in Seattle in 2000 or in 1999, you can snap a photo and, you know, there's no cell phones at this point, but you can snap a photo, go to a computer terminal, and upload that photo to a news website You know, as soon as you can get over to a computer. Um, and that was a radical change in the way that the sort of activist media had been produced. So that's happening in Seattle, and then the idea kind of catches fire, and people get incredibly excited by this. And uh, there are all sorts of other protests that are happening, uh, both around the world and in the United States, including protests at conventions. And you know, this all really ties into this activist this world of protest in 99, 2000 sort of prefigures Occupy Wall Street in many ways. Um, you know, but it was sort of this, this weird kind of middle generation of, of, of activist protest. So these things start to spread. These communities start to spread. One pops up in Philadelphia to cover the Republican National Convention in 2000. Um, and they, again, they really pioneer this idea of direct participatory grassroots journalism online. Um, you know, and because they kind of so they they're they're they they um they caught that world, they represent that world of pure decentralized media making um in a way that I thought was important to get in the book um because it was sort of the pure type uh that wasn't traditional journalism um and that's not to say that they were very successful, uh, particularly in Philadelphia. Um, there are a lot of reasons I could go into for why this was. Um, but there's sort of a weird organization to have in the book because they're not necessarily all that successful or all that important in retrospect in the larger development of the Philadelphia media ecosystem. Um, but they did represent um, a particular way of doing journalism, a particular idea of journalism. Um, I mean, ultimately, they were sort of caught up in factionalized Philadelphia activist politics, um, and they didn't integrate themselves very well into the larger kind of grassroots journalism community because they were so political. Um, and, and what they sort of – the kind of media making they advocated got kind of caught up in their political arguments and their political beliefs, um, and, and those were in some ways a stumbling block. Um, but they were certainly pioneers in this uh, of this idea that you know their slogan was "Don't hate the media, be the media," um, and that was kind of where they came from. And I wanted to get that moment uh, in the book, uh, along with talking in that chapter about um, sort of community blogger networks um, and a few other a few other new journalism organizations or new you know media production organizations because I saw that as kind of an alternate history of how journalism moved online. Um, 
you have your traditional history, which I tell in the first chapter, right, of how the news organizations adapted. And then I thought it was really important to show that, you know what, there were all these other things happening simultaneously that, you know, weren't happening at the major newspapers, but there were all these other people doing all these other things. Um, and I wanted to tell that story because I think to some degree now, um, and this really, I think, emerges in the Norg's chapter, which is later on in the book, um, but I think now we are seeing those streams intersecting. And I wanted to kind of tell that backstory of how we all got to the the moment we are now, which is you know one where it's very very hard to differentiate between citizen journalism, traditional journalism, you know, and, and all these other sorts of things. So there's this really there's a fast, fascinating ethnography going on with the Philadelphia Daily News and the and the Inquirer newsrooms. Um, the time that you spent with them, and, and I don't know if case study is too strong a word, but you use this thing of the of the car crash. The example of uh, building the everyday news in which you go kind of go point by point on how this car crash was covered. And it seems like a bit of a, of a nice little separation from what the rest of the book is about. What, what led you to include this example of what it means just to cover something that is done, you know, in right. pretty much every newsroom across the country, right. the, the, the car crash? Right, yeah. I mean, some of it is, again, just sort of the accident of ethnographic research. Um, I, um, um, you know, was was in the newsroom, and I was you know very sort of tuned in and and sort of firing on all cylinders research wise. When you know, just this very banal story kind of emerged, which was, hey, there was an accident um, off this you know near this off ramp uh, on this highway in Philadelphia, and you know um, we need to cover it, and it's early morning, um, and so you know it was really useful and interesting for me to see the entire way that that very banal, very basic story got covered and how it was being covered in ways that were different than ways that had been covered before, um, how it was being covered in ways that were very similar uh, to ways that news organizations had always covered those types of stories. Um, but again, you know, the idea of covering a car crash um, was sort of similar in some ways to the idea that, hey, I want to go to Philadelphia. Um, you know, I want to – I think it's a lot more interesting in many ways to look at these sort of very banal stories um, and these kind of everyday moments because I think that we get a understanding um, of how news organizations work, of how media organizations work, um, you know, um, in ways that we might not get when we talk about the big stories, you know, the, the things that, you know um, – you know the 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 resignation of a mayor or the resignation of the president or you know uh, major Supreme Court decisions or all this other stuff. I think that a lot of those details are really visible when we look at very basic, simple, um, like I said, banal stories. And the key with that is that you know you have to be a really good ethnographer and you have to be a good storyteller uh, to make those stories interesting um, because they sort of lack the drama that they might have if they were they were about to be quite honest if they were about more interesting <laughs> events um you know and i don't know you know I, I don't know the degree to which i succeeded making those interesting you know hopefully i made them interesting for other ethnographers at least um you know but it is it is a, it is a risk because you know you 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 might feel like oh my gosh there's like 20 pages on this car crash in this book what is this why is this guy going on about this this is so dull uh <laughs> You know, so I acknowledge that as being a risk. Um, except, but, I th except I'm so and I'm sorry to interrupt. I think yeah, yeah, no. I think I think it's a risk that that pays off. I mean, uh, part of what makes this work successful is that you need to show its applicability beyond just the place where you were, and this yeah. and that's what this does. Yeah, because you know what, um, every news organization covers car crashes, and you know, and and they cover all sorts of boring. Not it, they cover all sorts of boring everyday stories, and the way that journalism is or is not changing is often more obvious in the way these everyday stories play out than they might be when it comes to a piece of big news. Right. So in Chapter 5, you've got a subhead that is building a new local partnership or just what was NORG anyway. And so my yeah. question for you is just what was NORG anyway? Um, yeah, so NORG is a terrible, ugly name uh, um, that stands for New News Organization. Um the idea was basically that um, we uh, – so let's see. Um, so 
Will Bunch, who's a columnist with the Philadelphia Daily News, and and this was a time when the Philadelphia newspapers were about to be sold, wrote a very sort of provocative and influential blog post. He he was one of the bloggers that I said you know was kind of accepted by the blogosphere. Um, he wrote a very provocative and influential blog post where he you know said you know what we need to stop thinking of ourselves as as a newspaper. Uh, this was in 2005. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as a newspaper. We need to start thinking of ourselves as a news organization, um, and I would call that uh, a norg, um, which is a, like I said, an ugly, terrible word. Um, but it is an interesting, you know, an interesting conceptual move, you know, to start thinking of ourselves as no longer this newspaper that you know produces a daily product on paper and has all these traditional work practices to put that paper out, but as something different, as an organization designed to tell the news and tell people's stories in ways that might be slightly more um, contiguous with the state of the emerging digital media ecosystem. Um, so Will wrote this column, um, you know, and it kind of caught fire. And everybody, you know, it got passed around the blogosphere. It got passed around the newsroom. It got up to New York where people like Jeff Jarvis saw it, um, kind of the people who are these new uh, media gurus saw it. Um, and you know, and somebody had the bright idea. You know what? Let's have a conference. Let's have a day long get together uh, where we invite we invite everybody who's interested this interested in this to come together and talk about the future of journalism in Philadelphia. And what they ended that conference with was the idea of a news organization or a norg um, that had many of you. Remember when you asked about the benchmarks earlier? Sure. Yeah, that was sort of where they ended that 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 conference that day that you know when we have this new news organization these are going to be the kind of things that we want to see it do um you know and that's kind of where it where it where it ended um you know the problem was that not a lot happened after that um there was there was sort of this this tremendous amount of energy and goodwill um but you know not a ton not a ton of stuff happened after that, and there you know sort of various reasons why that might have been. Um, I think the real one, and this is a larger Philadelphia story kind of that that kind of shadows this entire book, is that you know so much of the Norg idea came out of the fact that the newspapers were about to be sold. No one knew who was going to buy them, whether they were going to shut one of the papers down, uh, were they going to fire everybody, were they going to lay everybody, you know, what was going to happen when these newspapers got sold and nobody knew. And that moment of crisis kind of created this energy and this interest um, behind doing something new. And then the papers got sold and they got sold to a local owner who, you know, who ended up treating them very well. And all the journalists who might have been worried about their jobs, um, kept their jobs. Um, and so when the moment of extreme crisis faded, people kind of got back into their routines. Um, they, they, they kind of got back to doing what they did every day for their jobs. Um, and in Philadelphia, one of the major problems, I think, has been that um, people only really seriously have these conversations about what is the future of news here um, when it looks like one or both of the papers are going to go bankrupt or are going to vanish. Um, and I think that's true in a lot of cities. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that's held the newspaper industry back. And then sort of building off off that, there's this great passage in which it's rebuilding the news again. Which yeah. is, you know, this is great because, you know, here, right. here's this book, Rebuilding the News, and it's almost like a sequel within the original. Yes. Which I love. But they meet, and this time it seems like now they've, they've sort of set their feet. And now they have an idea of, okay, now we know – now we think where, that we know where to go from here. And yeah. it's, and it's, it's, it's an optimistic or it's, it's an encouraging passage in here in that sort of – you never know where this crazy industry is going. Right. Um, but just the same, there, there's, some, there's, there's less fear in this section. And as this kind of gets along and as now, now it's 2010 to sort yeah. of set the scene here, you know, it's moved beyond Norg. And now it's people gathering again with what seems like a better sense of what needs to be done. I think that's really right, um, and and I would just print in parentheses say that they have you know had their own difficulties and and problems in, in their own ways. But yes, uh, that said, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, it's just being done that that second meeting uh, is being done at a different level. Um, the Norgs meeting was a bunch of people just kind of getting together and deciding we want to f- solve this problem and we want to figure this out, and it was some really really 
incredible people, incredible journalists, pioneers in digital media, um, but who were not necessarily trained in how to build organizations, how to change organizations. They, they didn't have any money to make these changes happen. No one wanted to kind of – there was no institution. One of the things I say in the book is that we need to build news networks. But news networks don't just appear out of nowhere like mushrooms or, or fungus or moss. You need institutions to create networks. And that was a really major point I wanted to get through in this book. That, you know, I think we think about digital technology uh, or the internet or communication or whatever, and we think about it in this very um, kind of deinstitutionalized way, right? That everything it's sort of organic and things just emerge and and you know people collaborate and they they you know and this all just kind of comes out of the ether. And I think if that was true, then Norgs would have been a raging success because that is exactly what that was. But instead, uh, in the second meeting I talk about, um, it was run by the William Penn Foundation, which is a large grant making Philadelphia foundation, um, which both has money to give out, has an agenda. You know, has ways that they know how to encourage collaboration. They have they have money they can dangle, you know, to reward success. Um, so you know, it's just happening at a different level with a different degree of institutional input. Um, you know, and people, like you said, people also just know what they're doing more. They know, you know, the things haven't settled down, but you know, they have a better sense of where the crisis is, what the crisis is, and what can be done to combat it. But you know, I think to me. Um, you know, the major shift between 2006 when the NORGS meeting was and 2010 where that second meeting was, was just, you know, you have institutional players involved in kind of trying to foster these networks in a way that you did not have in 2006. Um, you know, I mean, if the Philadelphia Daily News had stood up in 2006 or the Philadelphia Inquirer had stood up in 2006 and said, you know what, we – love these ideas and we are going to make an institutional commitment to this to realizing these ideas and seeing them through you know we're going to hire someone to do it it's going to be someone's full-time job we're going to kind of build this new news organization within these newspapers that could have been totally different um and and the story that i tell in this book might have been a very very different story um but nobody did that and it took, you know, a foundation, a community foundation five years later to sort of be the one to step up to the plate and say, hey, you know what, this is important. Um, you know, we're going we're gonna to help try to realize this, this more ad hoc journalism world. Sure. I have a, <clears throat> one last question about the book for you, and, and thanks for your time. I'm going to read your last two lines to you, um, which I'm sure you love. But, but for the, uh, for the <laughs> listeners, uh, it says that – um, local reporters, editors, foundation heads, hackers, regulators, and media activists will, meaning determine the course of digital journalism. Given all the pain journalism has experienced in the past decade and a half, it would be a shame to waste this moment. What is your ultimate hope for this book, Rebuilding the News? Well, you know, I had a, I, I had a little book party uh, on Wednesday and some, some – Friends of mine were there, including New Yorker friend, you know, New York living friends of mine who were, worked at the Daily, the New York Daily News, and the 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 uh, Wall Street Journal, and people who I were friends of mine who I'd known, you know, for a long time, um, who were in the business. And one of them was was reading this book, you know, and she was about halfway through, and she said to me, she said, you know, I'm reading this, and you know, and as you write it, um, you know, I can see myself, you know, at the various stages that I've gone through. Um, in my own journalistic career, you know, dismissing certain things, contemptuous of certain things, you know, and, and she's like, I see myself sort of evolving in the same way that the characters in this book um, evolve. And my hope is that, you know, I have two hopes. For the journalism world, I hope that some journalists will read this and, you know, by getting a sense of their own past, um, where they've come from, um, they will be able to better make decisions about where they want to go in the future. I think the problem with the internet is that you know we tend to think that every six months everything is totally new again and there's no history to this stuff. So I hope that journalists will read this. They will get a sense of their own kind of institutional collective history, um, which will allow them to make to make better decisions. Um, I also have high hopes for it, you know, as does everyone, I guess, in the in the scholarly community. Um, I've really tried to strike a balance, and I don't know if I was successful. Um, between doing a theoretically rich, you know, empirically rich ethnographic book that that maybe puts an, a new spin on old methods, um, 
you know, and, and it can, can still be sort of integrated into the scholarly dialogue about, you know, media sociology and newsroom ethnography and, and everything else. Um, you know, that's sort of a longer term question. Um, you know, we'll have to see whether the book really takes hold in, in the more academic world. Um, but I do have, you know, I do have hopes for it there as well. So I guess we'll see. Great. Well, the book is done. And so what is next? You know, I, um, when I was talking about how journalists have to find new sources or they have to be open to new sources, that sort of spurred me on to my next project. Um, my next project is pretty different. Um, I don't want to, you know, go on about it for a very long time because it's just starting. Um, but, you know, I want to do something a little more historical. Um, I want to maybe, you know, take off my Herb Gans hat a little bit and put on my Michael Shudson hat a little bit. Uh, you know, to, you know, not that I'm obviously at the league of either of them, um, but you know, I'm interested in doing a cultural history of how journalists have used documents um, in news production, um, which perhaps sounds very inside baseball. Um, but I think it can really shed a lot of light on these larger questions about data and big data and algorithms. You know, I really am interested in, you know, how have journalists thought about documentary evidence, um, you know, going all the way back to, you know, to the penny press um, when we started to see this move from journalists cutting and pasting news stories from other newspapers to journalists sort of starting to fetishize this idea of the individual observation and the interview with another human being, Um so I think that that is kind of you know the question I'm interested in pursuing next, um, which does again emerge out of something in this book, which is you know how are journalists' idea of of what sources are changing. So you know that'll be more of a history, but it will include some ethnographic chapters at the end, perhaps. Um, but that's the next project. Great. Well, the book is Rebuilding the News: Metropolitan Journalism in the Digital Age, and the author is C. W. Anderson. And C. W. This has been fun and entertaining and enlightening, and thank you for writing this book and for coming on with us. Of course. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's really great to be here. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Rebuilding the News, written by today's guest, C.W. Anderson, at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.